0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, The Pagans Are Revolting, and the author is SD Lake. And Stephen joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Stephen. Hi, how you doing? Well, before we get into the details, uh, for everyone's overview, I'm going to read a few things you have written about your book to give a general introduction. You say this, this book is a commentary on this present culture of death and hedonistic unrestraint based on the concept of naturalistic secularism and godless nature worship, which advocates for a worldview which has no room for Christianity with its paradigm. Well, that is a mouthful. But at the <laughs> same time, it just zeroes in on your view that... We talk about Christianity, but there's a lot of gray areas here, aren't there? That's what a lot of people are going down this road. Is that what you're saying? They're in the shadows and not the pure gospel? Well, just yeah,
2: that's my
1: uh,
2: understanding as I look at the culture, that they're just they're trying to throw off any kind of uh, moral restraints based in, quote, uh, other people's ideas of what, what morals are and what people should be doing.
1: You also say, I want the reader to come to understand that the culture war is now. What do you mean by the culture war? Well, the uh,
2: this has been going on for a very long time. I mean, they threw prayer out in the 60s out of the public schools, and uh, the educational system now is really, they are mind benders. They are trying to shape uh, the next generation into a secular society where there is no room for... Uh, quote-unquote religious values uh, where everything um, pretty much is what whatever you believe in your heart that's good enough for you and it's very subjective and everybody has their own idea about what is good or what is bad and nobody can really judge the other person's view and that battle is now because this next generation that's coming up right from the get-go from the public school system that's how they're trained to think and the uh teachings of any generation will be the laws of the next generation as these young people graduate and become our politicians
1: and you also give a clarion call i would say you say now is the time to stand up and be counted and not to wait because once a generation of god haters is raised up then morality will be in the garbage and a culture of paganism will prevail until the country falls apart
2: Wow, you say it, and uh, that really that shakes my heart, even as I wrote it, it shook me, because uh, that that is the uh, direction that the country's taken now. And the older generation, I say older, I mean people who uh, probably are baby boomers, uh, they're the ones now that uh, need to stand up and cast a vote for, uh, for values and morality based in the Christian tradition, which is what the country was basically founded on our constitution. And that's being thrown out the window along with the Christian values
1: and you talk about the family now how does the family play a part in all of this? Well,
2: I have grandchildren and uh, stepchildren and as the you know, children may not always do what you say but they'll certainly do what you do and uh, if you don't practice any kind of a uh, religious kind of attitude within your home uh, then they're not going to have anything to to base their their Morality, and they're going to be valuable by the, by the educational system. They're, there's going to be nothing, to, no foundation for them to stand on. They're not going to recognize right from wrong. I mean, I believe that the parents should set the example for the children. And should, you know, not everybody goes to church, but if you go to church, take your children with you. You know, if you read your Bible, then read it in front of your children. If you pray, pray with your door open. Pray with your children. Uh, if you believe in your Christianity, then you should practice it. And you should practice it with your children because they're going to be raising their children, and they need something that's going to set an example other than the secular culture. So what? In my opinion.
1: <laughs> so you talk about Christianity and Jesus Christ uh, must be demonized and discredited. Uh, is is that totally happened, or are we still on that path? At uh, what degree has this occurred?
2: No, it has not occurred uh, as of yet. In Wholesale-y. Uh No, they're trying to, and uh, when I say they, I mean people that are not Christians, people who don't believe, uh, they, they believe that uh, Christ and Christianity is nothing more than a simple fantasy, that uh, God didn't create man, man created God, and uh, they think that that's just uh, a mechanism that uh, human race has leaned on and that there's really no room for it anymore. They, they don't believe in the reality of uh, Christ and the reality of the Christian religion as being a uh, a, a true depiction of a um, God's son who came to Earth. They think that's more of uh, like a fantasy, like a fairy tale, and uh, and that's how they view it. And they, that's how they actually despise it in that manner. That people that of faith they really believe must have uh, low intellect or just uh, are just so easily led, like sheep because uh, they, they can't imagine how anybody could possibly believe that. And secularists, um, they have their own views. and Now, they may believe in spacemen, but they don't believe in God. So that's kind of interesting, in my opinion.
1: So this humanistic view of the world is all about the individual, then? It's all the answers are within the individual? Uh, is that... I mean, how do you describe that?
2: Well, yeah, but. That- all the answers of being in the individual, that's uh, that's kind of like um, Eastern religion where uh, you are God and uh, you have all the answers within you. I think uh, some of the present day um, fad cults or fad religions kind of uh, expound that same kind of thinking that you are everything you need within yourself. You are all you need. And uh, I believe that that's not... That that's a fallacy because uh, in Christianity we're told to lose ourselves and to find our worth and our our um, acceptance in God. Uh, it's hedonistic or narcissistic to think that we're just so wonderfully great in our own right. That uh, people they get they get their egos up and they go astray and they just think that everything that they think do or want to do. Is correct. And uh, one of the things that Socrates said that he thought was rather humorous was that people who are wise in one field seem to think that they have all the answers in every field. So some people who are maybe would be very successful as actors somehow think they're really tremendous philosophers, which is not the case.
1: Well, that seems to uh, sum up much of those in Washington, D.C. today as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Now, you also say uh, ever, any reference to God and the faith of the founding fathers of the Constitution must be rewritten or minimized as to having influenced the writing of the Constitution. So that is a prevailing attitude as well?
2: Well, yeah, they, they uh, well, I keep saying they, but I, I, the, the powers that be that are secularist uh, that don't want any God in the public arena, they would like to have you think that most of the founding fathers were deists, uh, which is really not a Christian. A deist is not a Christian. A deist is a person that may say that there, yes, is a God, and he started the universe, but then he, he left it, that he is no longer involved in it, he is no longer involved in the lives of people, he's no longer to be prayed to, that he is hands-off now on the human condition. And they would like to... You'd think that the Founding Fathers were all deists, but they weren't uh, followers of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, which is, if you read the early writings in this country, and not just the writing in the Constitution, but of the signers of the constitutions and their personal correspondence, they're all Christians. They all believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they they thanked God for this country and the blessings on this country. But the way it is in the educational system now is, is they want to put jesus christ on a shelf with every other possible philosophy and just put them right up there and they're all equal and nobody's better than anybody else and you can you can worship a tree or you can worship jesus christ it really makes no difference and they'd really prefer you worship worship nothing other than mother earth and the power of nature and evolution which is what caused all this to come about in their minds
1: you've been involved of In a prison fellowship ministry since uh, 1993, and and uh, you've gotten uh, you're a mental health counselor. Uh, How did that experience uh, mold your thinking about uh, writing this book?
2: Well, it it really did have a great influence on it because uh, I see the people that I came to counsel with uh, within the prison system through the chaplaincy, which is a Christian. A Christian focus, a Christian worldview—almost uh, to a man, none of them had any foundation in a belief system about anything. They were—they sec- were sexualists. They thought to believe in a god or uh, that you had any kind of a responsibility to uh, to live your life in a certain manner was nonsense. And that's how they kind of went their own ways and. Uh, Most of the people that I had counseled with personally uh, were somehow always hooked up in some kind of a self-serving substance abuse or drugs or just illicit sex or just uh, a devil-may-care attitude about life, Uh, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. They had no focus on the future and no hope for the future, and that's most of the people that I have run across.
1: Your book is broken down into three sections. Uh, give us kind of an overview of the different sections.
2: Well, the first—I uh, didn't title the sections. Uh, the, the the first section is more—I I like to call it the soapbox section <laughs> because that's kind of like we're uh, kind of put a lot of uh, things into focus on what's going on within our our governmenting our governmental system, our school system, the educational system. And then uh, Section 2 is more of a, well, I would hesitate to put a psychology uh, tag onto that, but it really is about how people learn and come to think the way they think, that uh, some people really don't have any, they don't take control of their own thoughts. They just kind of like absorb anything that comes in, and they really don't screen anything through any kind of a, a lens to check it out to see if it's, if it's going to be something that's going to be healthy for them and they just kind of absorb everything and before you know it they don't know what to believe they believe everything and there's that old saying you know if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything and that's kind of what section two is about uh section three was more um more about relationships about um significant uh people in your life children your wife your family and uh Ways to relate to them and not always putting yourself first in a self-gratifying manner, but uh, to having to uh, be, well, Jesus said, it's better to serve. Uh, to, he came as a servant. It's better to give than receive. And it kind of focuses on uh, those types of relationships. Uh, and in, in my own life, kind of how what I've come to find really is rewarding in, is in my relationship with my wife is to put her needs before mine. And I find that to be very fulfilling in my life, and I just want to share that with my reader.
1: Well, a real key, as you point out in Section 2, uh, the real key is we have to educate the young, don't we? We have to t- get them back to the basics of, of the foundations of this country uh, upon the Constitution, about, upon our belief in God, or there probably isn't any hope for the future.
2: Well, no, I believe that uh, you're correct in that assumption. There, that uh, that that was pretty much what I uh, had come to realize: is that if the next generations are left without God in their lives, uh, then it's going to be uh, it's going to be total secularism, and God is going to be pushed into a corner, and anybody who believes in Him is going to have no voice within the public arena because they're going to be and and uh, they're going to be viewed as being intolerant because uh, they have. Uh, Values that they say something is the right, something is not the right way to live, and people are going to say, Well, that's intolerant. You can't tell other people how to live their lives. You have no basis for that. But in reality, there is a basis. It's, it's in the law of our land, which is founded on Judeo Christian values, and there is right and wrong. And that's what needs to be instilled in our children, and they need to know where, it, where that value system came from, and it came from our founding fathers.
1: So, as a friend of mine who is running for Congress, who's a pastor, he said, "This is really spiritual warfare."
2: Oh yes, yes, and well, you know, the, <laughs> I don't want to get on a soapbox again, but as I was saying, but you know, the our battle is not with flesh and blood. I mean, if you look at a person; a person just stands there. It's the person within the person, the person, the thought patterns, what they think and what they believe. They're just in this vehicle that's a body. But the spiritual warfare is about the minds of people, and what they're going to believe, whether they're going to believe in a God, and the values that are put forth in the Judeo-Christian tradition, or whether they're going to believe there is no God, and you can live your life any way you want to. And that's where the battle is. It is a spiritual
1: battle. The title of the book is The Pagans Are Revolting. Stephen, tell us how to get your book.
2: Well, we can get it's available online at Amazon.com. It's available through iUniverse Publications, uh, and it's also uh, it's going to be available in Borders uh, with their online ordering. It's, um, it's out there. <laughs> it's, uh, there's several different venues to, to pick it up.
1: Well, thank you, Steve, and Thanks so much for being on iUniverse Radio.
2: Well, thank you very much for, for having me, and I appreciate it.
1: The author is S.D. Lake. The title of the book, The Pagans Are Revolting.
0: You're listening to iUniverse
3: Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, Noon Central on Tuggy Nat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing? Chronicling her opinions on everything. The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginet.com. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating and how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbury. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back.
0: To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Stan's Leap, and the author is Tom Durek, and Tom joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tom. Hello. Well, this is an adventure story, probably people's worst nightmare who were traveling to get stranded on an island. Well, why? Why take that twist? Why t- go down that road? What was fascinating to you about creating these characters and this incredible, you know, story of survival?
4: Well, I've always been, um, I guess, intrigued or interested by uh, all the great castaway stories in history. You know, mutiny on the Bounty is probably the the greatest of them all. And um, whenever I read these things, I find myself wondering. If something like that could really happen today, or whether it's a thing of the past, and uh, if it could happen, then uh, what would it be like if uh, there were ordinary people, not adventurers, but vacationers that were were trapped? And I guess uh, I just started writing, and I didn't really know at first where it was going. It was just a way of trying to find out where it would go. Uh, So in the end, it was a lot of fun, and the story actually went a very different way than I expected.
1: Well, you right that the most difficult part was coping with the characters that had a very different idea where the book should go? In the yeah. end, they won. I thought,
4: they, that's right; they so, did win. And, so,
1: what did they? You know, they—it's it, something that uh, I hear all other authors talk about: how their characters take on a life of their own.
4: Well, that's really true, and and you know, it was my—it's my first novel, and it was something I guess I never would have believed or imagined. I think Kurt Vonnegut wrote about that, actually, in Breakfast of Champions. And in retrospect now, I, it, it, I can really see that. I, I had plans for each of the characters. I knew who was going to have relationships with whom and so on. And, in fact, they didn't listen to me at all. They, they, they went their own direction, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun to see, see what they did.
1: Why did you choose Henderson Island? Now, this is a real place. This really exists. It
4: really exists. Uh, Henderson Island (coughs) is um, the most remote island, probably the most remote place on Earth. It's uninhabited. It's never been inhabited. And uh, it happens, by coincidence, to be just 100 miles away from Pitcairn Island, where the mutiny on the bounty um, uh, mutineers went uh, to escape from the British. Um, so I guess I kind of researched, I needed an island that, that was really very isolated and it w- could make the whole story plausible. And I stumbled on Henderson Island, the more I read about it, the more fascinated I became with it. Um, and the fact that it was near Pitcairn Island only made it more intriguing because the history of Pitcairn is, uh, is an astounding story for those that don't know it.
1: Well, this is so fascinating to you that you're actually going there, you told me, to Henderson Island, to see I, it firsthand.
4: I've arranged the trip, that's right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I estimate that somebody goes there about once every two years, and there is a, a very small trip going there uh, next year, and I'm, I've am i booked a, a place on board. You can't fly there, and there are very few uh, ships that go there, but uh, I'm looking forward to it.
1: The characters all start as normal people, people that we all know, you say.
4: That's the idea, yep. I, I actually started by having prototypes, people I knew, and I thought, let's see how this person would uh, respond and how they would behave in this kind of an environment, but they sure changed.
1: So tell us about the main characters. Uh, there's five or six main characters, and there's about 20 characters in the in, throughout the story, but these main characters tell us about Stan, what kind of a person regular person is Stan. Well,
4: you you pretty much said it. He is exactly <laughs> that. He's a regular person. He's a a software engineer and uh he is not an adventurer at all. Now his his wife is quite an adventurer and talks him into going on this trip. Um and uh and uh, you know, I, I don't want to say too much about what happens to Stan and Jenny because there are a lot of surprising twists and turns in their life. Um, but suffice it to say that uh, uh, their their lives and relationship change enormously.
1: How does it? How do people deal with the unimaginable? Then, how do they deal? I mean, what what is the process? What was the process you put them through? Obviously, they get marooned there in some way, and then there comes a time where they have to all of a sudden go, what's going on, right?
4: Yeah, that, that, that was... Uh,
1: why why are we still here? Why aren't we rescued?
4: Right, exactly. Why didn't the plane come and pick us up? And when the plane is, day, is late on the first day, well, you can cope with that. And the second day, you, you can cope with it. And then after a few days, you start to wonder what's really going on. And um, it, it, that was quite interesting. Different people uh, came to grips with uh, reality faster than others. And then there were different schools of thought once they did. Should they try and leave the island on their own? Obviously a very risky proposition. Should they try to uh, to uh, do the best they can on the island, or do they simply give up? And, um, and little clans begin to form, depending on how they... Uh, they respond to it
1: so how many people are on the island
4: well it changes throughout the story um originally there are there are 22 let's say there are additions Uh, there are there are there are children that are born eventually and there are um there are people that pass away Um, but it, it the population stays right around that number
1: so an accident turns into a whole lifetime
4: An accident turns into a whole lifetime. That's right.
1: How did you? How did Stan? uh, Who? Who is the leader here? Are there different factions uh, developing? It sounds like there are.
4: There are. There are three factions, each with their own leader, and uh, there with different,
1: probably with different uh, criteria or not or agendas.
4: (laughs) uh, Very different agendas. And there's one overwhelming leader or personality. Uh, Kimo is his name, and he is in fact the, um, I guess you could say, the chief of the island, uh, the person that uh, that uh, uh, is responsible for the resort when they first land, and he becomes an overwhelming character, neither good nor bad, controversial, I guess you could
1: so this is really a psychological kind of uh, journey into people's lives that all of a sudden get their lives turned upside down, and they all, in a unique way deal with the situation or don't deal with it. <laughs> That's
4: right they all the, the heroes become well let's say protagonists become antagonists and vice versa. so the people I expected to be uh, you know the uh, the heroes turned out not to be, and vice versa.
1: When you put that amount of stress on people, you never know what's going to happen.
4: Well, that's true.
1: So give us a little insight into one of these factions. Uh, you know, what is Stan a leader of a faction?
4: He is, um, and his, his particular faction is one that wants to do everything they possibly can to get off the island and find out what's really going on, um, you know, why they were never picked up and what's really going on in the outside world. They're unable to do that. There are physical constraints which make that exceedingly risky or difficult. But that's his faction's uh, perspective.
1: Now, you mentioned second generation. You mentioned children being born. Now, uh, do these children become part of the drama because they grow up and become adults?
4: Uh, Yes, and, and and that was a lot of fun to write about, too, because you can imagine... Um, a whole generation with a huge generational gap of 20 years and the older generation telling the younger generation about all these things in the world like airplanes and elevators and uh, television and so on and frankly they don't believe any of it you know ice does ice exist how could it Um, you know it doesn't make sense to them snow and all these things So it's really very interesting to see how the younger generation and the older generation um, bifurcate. And this, you know, I don't mean to drag on, but that actually happened at Pitcairn Island, where exactly this happened 200 years ago with the mutineers and their Tahitian uh, wives uh, settled down, and there was a 20-year age gap between them and the next generation. Uh, So it's it's not a crazy proposition.
1: How did you have them survive as far as you know this is a remote island what about food what did they have to learn to do
4: food was the easiest part uh food was the easiest part because the the, this is a a resort if you like a vacation resort where people go to live like ancient polynesians 200 years ago so the the resort was set up to be self-sustaining no problem with food there's plenty of food on the island it 's the issue there were no metal, there was no metal, no modern materials, no radios, phones, or anything of that sort, um, but actual physical survival was was really not so much an issue.
1: who was is the strongest woman on the island on in this adventure?
4: <laughs> 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 um, how do I say that without giving away too much i 'll make it easy um, there's a there's a a Tahitian girl named Mati. And I would say she turns out to be the, uh, uh, in the end, the most powerful.
1: So she is an island woman from the, from that, I guess, was working there at the resort. She was. She was one of the two
4: people that was running the resort. And as I say, you know, changed enormously. Uh, but she, I would say she turns out to be the, the heroine, if you
1: like. So how does the resort become an island of survival if it's a resort?
4: Yeah, well, yeah, you got to read it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's one of the, um, that's, one of the that's, to, yeah. Yeah, that's part of the story,
4: huh? Right. So, I mean, I will say this. A week into it, there's a a, a great storm that comes by, and it's a very unusual storm. Nothing like anything anyone had seen before. Uh, I'm not saying terribly severe, just some very unusual aspects to it that lead different people to conclude different things about why people haven 't come to pick them up, and again i don 't want to say what actually happened uh, that that uh, you got to read it to find that out
1: Tom, as you did your research on these remote places uh, in henderson island pitcairn Island. Uh, what was the the attraction? What was the tie that that you wanted to focus on these and these islands as part of your story, or at least you know the the uh, similarity to this remote place in your story?
5: Yeah,
4: I, I mean I brought up Pitcairn before. I mean I, I I don't know how familiar people are with what really happened there. Maybe it it makes sense to just uh, revisit that. Uh, there were eight of um, mutineers on the bounty that everybody makes a movie about. and Everybody talks about Captain Bly and Fletcher Christian, but not very much is spoken about uh, what happened to the mutineers later. So these eight mutineers kidnapped 13 Tahitian women and um, five Tahitian men slaves that they treated as slaves. And they sunk the boat off this Pitcairn Island, which was at the time, again, uh, amongst the most remote islands in the world, and um, set, a, set out to, to live there forever. I mean, they had no choice. The island was about a mile in circumference, tiny, just a rock, mischarted on every, on every map there was. And, and now you've got these 13 women, 8 Englishmen, and 5 Tahitian men, stranded on this island and what happens is just an amazing story the first there was a a racial war between the tahitians and english and the uh, tahitian men were all killed then the tahitian women um, had a war with the men and all the men got killed they were all killed and the women kept one man as quote i would say breeding stock um, and the island remained unvisited and undetected for 25 years um, until finally a boat came by. And you can't land at the island, but the, the Pitcairn Islanders came out in a canoe 25 years later, the second generation, out to an American whaling ship, I guess it was, and, um, and um, I guess hailed the ship in, in English. And it turns out they built a society there in 25 years that spoke English, uh, could read and write, um, and was totally isolated from the rest of the world, completely. And um, it's just a great story and still very mysterious exactly what happened. And Pitkin still exists. It has a population of about 60 people, um, and it is still completely isolated from the rest of the world. Well, so I mean, if there was one thing that kind of drove me, it was it was that story. And, you know, could that really happen? And what would I, it's just a fascinating story.
1: And just as you were talking, I was thinking about how a society would uh, come together in such a unique situation. And then, you you know, with the whole aspect of government. Of rules and regulations there would have to be new rules and regulations created for the circumstance (laughs) very good very good and i'm sure that's part of your story too (laughs) there's there's where the power play comes in (laughs) yep very good
4: you're exactly right and once again there's a, a fabulous analog to pitcairn where in fact in the news the new zealand government is trying to impose its laws on pitcairn and it's it's turning out to be an impossibility. Hmm. Uh, but it, it, it's very much in the news.
1: Well, Tom, tell us how to get your book.
4: Uh, well, the easiest is uh, is Amazon.com, of course, carries it. Or I have a website, StanSleep.com, inventively named. Uh, those uh, easy channels.
1: And, of course, iUniverse.com.
4: That's right, iUniverse.com as well. But the StanSleep uh, website will link to iUniverse. So.
1: We appreciate you sharing <laughs> Your story with us, Tom.
4: Well, it's a pleasure.
1: That was Tom Durig. He is the author of his book, Stan's Leap.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
2: Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear
4: some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
0: Why don't you look up the
2: schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with
3: Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on DougieNet. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central.
2: You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me.
3: Check out the website, girlfriended.com Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, on Toginet.com. Welcome
0: back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Meet My Shadow. And the author is Luke Tugas. And Luke joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Luke. Hello. Good to have you with us now. I'm going to read a few things that you have written about your book, Meet My Shadow. You say this. I lived a lie for eight years. No one knew until I asked for help. This book is my confession on how I managed to drink nightly for years without anyone's knowledge. Through my format, I bring you with me every step of the way. And you also say, who does this book appeal to? I would say 14 and up. You say, I believe it can be used as a prevention for younger generations. I believe it can be used for those affected by alcoholism directly or indirectly. Luke, how old are you right now?
5: 25.
1: 25. So when did you start drinking?
5: Um, Well, I noticed that I started becoming, it became a a pattern with around 15.
1: 15. Now, when you say a pattern, what do you mean by a pattern?
5: As in, it was happening on a weekly basis instead of just one every few months. Okay. And then at 13, I, I tasted alcohol at 13. And then at 15, it kind of became more regular.
1: All right. Um, why would you say at that young age it became so regular?
5: Uh, it was a uh, relief pain, uh, it took away memories, Okay. thoughts, and it just kind of helped me sleep. I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. I didn't know if it was bad. Didn't know all that stuff.
1: Right. Your friends were doing it, so you, it was okay, right?
5: Yeah, my friend, we would do it once in a while together, but I started drinking alone at 15. Oh. I would, I would find some uh, hard hard liquor samples around the house, and then I'd just go in my room and drink that.
1: And so at that time of, of your life, of course, you're not thinking at all that uh, you're... Using alcohol as a, a crutch, as a, as treatment for your pain, right? No,
5: not at all.
1: All like you no know, education. yeah. All you know, you just feel better. Exactly. At least you think you feel better, right? Yeah, for sure. So when when did you become aware that you were, I guess, lack of a better way to say it, that you were an alcoholic? When did you become aware of that fact?
5: Uh, I'd say about 18, 19, when I got to university, um, I started studying psychology, and I'd be reading the books, and after a while, I started realizing that I was already statistic, sorry, I can't say that.
1: Yeah, statistic, you're already a, a category, right? You fit right in.
5: Yeah, Exactly. Um, So, yeah, I I would be reading stories as I was drinking and go, okay, um, there's definitely something wrong here. And then I soon found out that it was alcoholism.
1: Because as you read that, you went, oh, my goodness, that's me. Yeah. So when you realized this, what did you do? What what was the, I mean, did you decide that you were going to stop at that moment in time?
5: Uh, That's when I started with... uh, self-help attempts to get to quit but um, none of them worked I try at this time I started seeing a psychologist um, where I just kind of paid to lie because when I finally told him it was hard for him to understand and then I soon left after that and there were just a bunch of other ways I tried to quit I tried meditation I tried books finding a girlfriend all that kind of stuff
1: Mm-hmm. But nothing worked?
5: No, nope, not until I uh, I caved and I decided to go to AA.
1: Tell us about the first experience. It's your introduction in your book, but tell us about going to AA for the first time, if you can remember all those feelings and everything that was racing through your mind.
5: Um, I felt defeated. Uh just knowing that, just walking into the room, seeing all the people there. And I was the youngest by a good 20 years. And just, I felt lost, didn't know what I was doing. I did not feel good about it, in the least, because I didn't want to quit at this point. So I knew that it had to be done. It was a pretty tough feeling, tough to to swallow. But after a while, after a few meetings, and getting uh, accustomed to it, it started feeling pretty good.
1: So after that first meeting and you at all didn't feel like you should be there or you didn't fit in or you, you know, you didn't relate to these people, what brought you back to the second meeting?
5: Um, well, when I first got sober, uh, I went to the meeting and then I only went to four after that for about a month. And then I had a slip. So it... That, the first time i don't really count it just because it never really worked on me i i never accepted step one
1: so you were in denial the whole time as probably they would say right
5: yes absolutely so i I never accepted it that i had a problem until i went back out and had that slip and then when i had that slip i said okay well there's really no way out of this now so after that i went after a couple of weeks of drinking i went back and i went to 35 meetings in 35 days and that's kind of when i just started going with it and realizing that it's okay and i'm better off uh naa and i started enjoying it
1: 35 meetings in 35 days uh these people became probably uh like family
5: yes uh they would do anything to make sure I would stay sober, and they didn't even know my last name. So just that fact right there meant a lot to me. And yeah, I learned a lot from them. They, They told stories of how they got to where they were. And it really helped put my life in perspective. So
1: that really, the AA meeting is really people sitting in a, in a group, just telling their own uh, latest uh, life story. I guess, right? They're, the good, are, the good, and the bad.
5: Yeah, in a sense, uh, we always have topics of the day, and uh, usually we'll, the the topics bring out a breaking past, and we start talking about that, and then just kind of how. We hit that downward spiral, and then how we got back, back up.
1: How did you overcome any kinds of fears or anxiousness about really sharing with these people who were really strangers at first?
5: Uh, it took a while. Um, they would ask me to speak, I wouldn't speak for a bit, but after time and just listening to all their stories and seeing how open they were and how comfortable they were talking about their own problems, like and they could laugh at their problems. And for me, that was a big thing because at this point, I was just such a wreck. And I thought, I was pretty ashamed. I still would not tell anyone about my drinking. I was going to meetings in secret. And uh, just to see these people be able to laugh at their issues was pretty huge for me. And with time, I was able to just open up.
1: So who was the first person, a friend or family, that you told you were going to AA?
5: um well first person i'd say would actually be my aunt she was in town from hong kong visiting my mom but my mom was out of town when she came in so but it's kind of confusing but what happened was my aunt got in and then my mom was coming in town the next day so the night before my mom got in i sat my aunt down and i told her about what was going on it was hard for her to believe me but she understood and uh when my mom got home. We sat her down, and then I told them. And they said, "Are you ready for AA?" And that's kind of how it started.
1: How did you hide this from family and friends? Why was it such a surprise to them?
5: Um, it started be- once I noticed that I had a problem. I was pretty embarrassed, and it started becoming a priority of mine to keep it a secret. As as important it was for me to drink it was just important for me to keep it a secret so I, it just was really important to me that my family know just because I knew if they found out I'd be a burden on their lives because I wasn't ready to quit drinking so I'd just be that alcoholic who needs help and not willing to get help so then I'd become that burden so I figured uh, if I was going to ruin myself I'd just do it on my own
1: when you told your aunt and your mother did it uh, did it help how, how what was the feeling that you had after confessing that
5: uh pretty much told myself that it was it. you just told two of the more important people in your life so you can't give up this time and you kind of help get sober which didn't actually happen at first because of that slip but it, it was the that foundation to, to start getting sober was you go to one meeting in AAA, and uh, you go try to drink again. It's going to be pretty tough to not think about what you've done. To actually say to, if you don't think you have a problem, go out with what you've heard in AA in the back of your mind and have one drink and see if you're not an alcoholic.
1: So the key, it sounds to me, and what you're saying, is to take that first step. Even though it may be hard, it may be embarrassing, you may feel all kinds of guilt and shame and all the above, but there's hope if you'll take that first step and go to that first meeting.
5: Absolutely. It's It's all about pushing yourself to take that first step. I believe the hardest part for me throughout everything that I've gone through in the last 10 years was that first step to say, okay, I have
1: a problem at the core Now, in your uh, answers to our questionnaire, you say that the bathroom floor. There's a section called the bathroom floor. Um, I'm, I'm picturing you on the bathroom floor. Is what passed <laughs> out? I guess. Is that? Tell us about the bathroom floor.
5: Oh, that was kind of the, the peak of. Uh, The hangovers, I would say. Okay. Um, For a while there, I'd wake up, and I'd be so sick and just weak that uh, I'd go throw up, and then I'd just lie there on the bathroom floor staring at the tiles for hours.
1: Wow. My goodness. And sometimes you would wake up, and that's where you'd wake up, on the bathroom floor?
5: Uh, No, I would wake up on the floor a few times, but not too often in the bathroom. Okay. Luckily.
1: But you, yeah, you got I, to know the bathroom floor uh, very well, yeah. I guess, huh? You were
5: Yeah, it kind of became a spot.
1: Yeah, your, your place. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Now, what's, uh, what's about this ex-girlfriend? Now, this ex-girlfriend, did she play a part in helping you, or was she uh, a character that was uh, really not helping at all, but maybe encouraging your drunkenness?
5: No, she definitely uh, helped me see who I became. Um, She's mentioned in the book more just to show what could happen to a relationship with alcohol. Mm. Um, she never knew, so she really didn't play a part in me increasing my intake. But mm-hmm. um, as time went on, I started becoming a worse person each day, and uh, she really helped show me that because I'd have to look myself in the mirror after we'd had a fight and whatnot. And then when she finally broke up with me, I was like, okay, if you lost that girl, you're, you're really messed up because, yeah, she she fell for me and I fell for her, and I didn't really see there was a chance of losing her, but then when uh, alcohol takes over your life, it's kind of hard to keep a relationship. So I just wanted to show that.
1: The title of the book, Meet My Shadow, Luke writes three words that best describe his story. He says, disturbing, honest, insightful, and the characters, real people with real emotions. And you say the fun part, Luke, writing this was that you know that you're not that person anymore. Good feeling, yes. So, uh, as some would say, you're 25. You're a recovering alcoholic. Uh, do you? Do they tell you you'll always be an alcoholic, so you have to be on guard the whole time?
5: Uh, yes. Um, there's really no way. No cure, which I'm quite okay with because I have a better life without alcohol, so I'm not really desperate to find an answer of how I can drink again without having a problem. Um, so yeah, alcohol for life. Um, okay with that.
1: And you have a future now. You didn't have one for a long time.
5: No, uh, I kind of had a fake one in a sense because I was going to school, but at the same time I didn't see a life past 25, so I didn't really there was definitely no future there.
1: So now you're back in college and you have hope for the future. Yes, I do. Well, good for you, Luke. So good to have you on this show. I know that Many young people, especially, will benefit greatly for you sharing your story, which is a hard thing to share. Obviously, there's a lot of things that you wish you didn't have to talk about. We salute you, Luke. Thank you. Luke, tell us how to get your book.
5: Uh, You can purchase it at uh, Amazon.com or Chapters Indigo or iUniverse.com. I'm starting to get it into the bookstores around me locally, but in the United States and just online right
1: now. Very good, very good. Well, thanks again for being with us.
5: All right, thank you very much.
1: That was Luke Tugas. He is the author of his book, Meet My Shadow.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.